You're listening to a sermon from St. John's Anglican in Cranbourne. To find out more about us, head to cranbourneanglican.org.au. Well, it was 1941, and it was Auschwitz. The alarms rang out because three people had escaped. And the deputy commandant of Auschwitz decided to call all of the prisoners into the yard. Someone was going to pay for this. And so he decided he was going to select at random 10 people to go into the starvation bunker. As the people were selected, one of the people selected was a guy by the name of Francis Gajnicek. Uh, there he is. And as he was selected, he came forward, he cried out, my wife, my children. Well, at that, another prisoner stepped forward. A guy by the name of Maximilian Kolbe. He was a, a priest, a Polish priest. And he said to the commandant, I don't have a wife, I don't have children. Let me go into the bunker in his, in his place. And I think perhaps as much out of surprise as anything else, the commandant allowed it to happen. Uh, some years later, uh, Guy Nietzschek talked about this moment uh, in these words. I could only thank him with my eyes. I was stunned. I could hardly grasp what was going on. The immensity of it. I, the condemned, am to live and someone else willingly and voluntarily offers his life for me, a stranger. Is this some kind of dream? I was put back into my place without having had time to say anything to Maximilian Colby. I was saved. Well, Colby died in that pit, but Francis Garnicek lived. And as you can imagine, that incident actually affected his life. It, it went with him for the rest of his days. And he spent the rest of his days going around telling people about what Colby had done for him. Well, our reading today, we find two other prisoners, uh, both faced with an order of execution. Only this time, the person who substituted for the other is not just a fellow prisoner, not just a religious leader, but he's a king. Over the last few months, we've been looking at kingships in the Bible and we've been following it through. And just last week, if you were here, we had the question, Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Messiah. You are the King of the Jews, essentially. And so as we come to our Gospel reading today, we begin in, in a very similar place. Pontius Pilate is there and he says, Are you the King of the Jews? Well, it starts in a very similar place, but everything has changed between those two questions. Uh, back then when Peter said, you are the Messiah, he was being followed by everyone. He was a wonder worker, he was a healer, he was a teacher and people hung on his words and there were crowds all around him. Even a week before, 
Jesus had come into Jerusalem and all the crowds had said, Blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They'd acknowledged him as the king, the king of the Jews. Finally, the king has come. But what a difference seven days can make. All the people have faded away, abandoned him. Even his closest disciples have run away and there is Jesus. He's standing alone in front of Pontius Pilate. We actually know a fair bit about Pontius Pilate, not just from the Bible, but from histories external to the Bible. We know he was the prefect of Judea from 26 AD to 36 AD. We know that he was a cruel man, but also vulnerable. He was over Judea, which was under the direct authority of the Emperor Tiberius, uh, which meant that if things go wrong, the emperor pulls you back to Rome straight away and gives you a talking to. This has already happened to Pontius Pilate before we come to the events of today. And so you can understand why Pilate might not want any trouble. Uh, he certainly doesn't want an insurrection. He certainly doesn't want a riot. And one of the ways in which he seeks to ensure that is... Every time there's the great feast, uh, the Jews all gather to Jerusalem. Uh, he has instituted a tradition where he will release one prisoner of their choice as a, an expression of Roman beneficence. Well, Jesus comes before him. He's dragged before him by the religious leaders. But Pilate knows that he, he's, he's innocent. He knows that it's actually from the jealousy of the religious leaders that Jesus is there at all. He knows he's innocent. Again and again in the passage, you hear that. The dream, his wife says, they have nothing to do with this innocent man. He questions him. He finds nothing. And so he wants to release him. And so he has a cunning a cunning plot, a cunning ploy. What will I do? I, you know what I'll do? I'll give them the choice. You can have Jesus or you can have Jesus Barabbas. You can have uh, this popular teacher and wonder worker or you can have, uh, Bar you can have Barabbas. And so... He gives them that choice. Who will you have? Well, the crowd, to his surprise, and I think a little bit to his chagrin, he was kind of hoping to release Jesus because that would probably get up the religious leader's nose and that would be an added bonus. But the crowd starts calling for Barabbas. Well, Pilate doesn't want to do it. He prevaricates for a little while. But in the end, he gives up. He's in a weak position and he gives them what they want. He gives them Barabbas. Now, could you imagine what it would be like to be Barabbas? Could you imagine it? You've been engaged in an insurrection and you've got this vision of a free Judea. You, you will do anything to bring that about. And even if it means that there's going to be some collateral damage, even if it means that I'm going to have to kill some people, maybe even innocent blood, well, that's worthwhile for the greater good. This is, I, that's what I want. And so you go, 
and you commit murder, you're caught red-handed. The Romans get you, they drag you in, they try you. The trial is brief and it's conclusive. You are guilty. And so they throw you into prison. And you've been there for a little while because one of the things the Romans like to do is if they're doing executions, they want to make sure there's as much publicity about it as possible. They wait until the great Jewish festival. We want to be nice and let loose someone, but we also want people to remember what happens if you come out from under the thumb. And so you've been in prison for a little while. But this morning... This morning, they haul you out of prison. And the Romans aren't gentle with you. They whip you mercilessly. And then they drag you out and you see before you a crowd of people. And there standing as well is another prisoner, another person who has been whipped, another person who stands in chains. And you recognize who that person is. It's the wonder worker. It's the one who everyone has been hanging on his words, the one who's been healing, uh, the one who has been setting the countryside alight. He knows who he is. It's Jesus. And there between you and him is the crossbar. And you know that one of you is going to pick up that crossbar and put it on your bloodstained back and you are going to carry it slowly through the streets of Jerusalem and outside the walls and onto the hill and one of you is going to die a literally excruciating death. And you have no hope that it is going to be you. It's Jesus, it's the wonder worker. There, no one has a bad word to say for him. And, and you, you're guilty, you've committed murder. You've got no hope that it's going to be you. But then in a daze, you begin to hear Barabbas. Barabbas, we want Barabbas and before you're startled, Mike, can you really even take it in? You see Jesus is picking up that crossbar and he's putting it on his back and he's walking slowly out to the death that only minutes ago was going to be yours. And the Romans, they come and they undo the chains and they set you free. Can you imagine what it's like to be Barabbas. Can you imagine it? Well, you don't need to, do you? Because you are Barabbas. I am Barabbas. I'm the, the rebel against God. And you might think, well, I'm not a rebel against God. I, I don't really mind God at all. I, my philosophy really is, with God, is live and let live. God can be God over there, I'll be me over here, I'll live my life, I'll do the things that I want to do and uh, maybe I'll come along occasionally to church even and that should be good enough for him. But uh, if he wants anything more of me, well, you know, there's a bit of a problem there. But, you know, on the whole, I don't have a problem with God. But don't you see, that is actually rebellion against God. If 
Jesus really is the king, if God really is God the king, then he is ruler of you. He's ruler of your life. He doesn't just take a little bit. He's got to be the center of your life. But we want to be the center of our lives. Uh, And that's the very essence of rebellion, isn't it? You're the rebel. But if you've come to Christ, if you trust in him, then Jesus has taken up that crossbar and he has walked that slow road to your death. He's done that for you. The righteous for the unrighteous. You know, Barabbas means son of the father. Barabbas. And actually, we're all sons of the Father or daughters of the Father. If he is our heavenly Father, then we're sons and daughters of the Father. And so if we're not living with him as Father and not relating to him as Father and loving him as Father, then we haven't yet taken on that he loves us so much that he would take our place. Sometimes... uh, I think as we look around around our society, one of the biggest problems that a lot of people have is they don't have that sense of self-worth. They think, I'm, I, I'm not really worthy in, my, in myself. And so you look for all sorts of ways in which you can get your worth. It might be in your gifts and abilities. Maybe you're fantastic at music. And you love to play and that's where you get your worth. Maybe it's in... The bank account. Maybe it's just in that feeling of people need me. I'm the kind of person who comes and helps. People need me and I can, I can help them. Maybe it's in how I look. But you know, uh, all of those things end up letting us down, doesn't it? Eventually, if they haven't already. And so we're desperately, and we're just left there and we don't feel worthy. Barabbas wasn't worthy. He'd done nothing before Jesus picked up that crossbar. He wasn't worthy. And yet, and yet he was Jesus Barabbas. He was son of the Father. He was made in the image of God and God loved him. And you're in the image of God and you're a son or daughter of the Father and God loves you. That's the whole point. It can even creep into our relationship with God, can't it? You kind of think, well, yes, Jesus died for me, and, but Jesus, don't do that because I'm not worthy of that. Well, no. No, you're not. And yet, you are noble. And you have something in you that is eternal. And there is something that reaches uh, to a meaning that is well beyond any of the other things we try and put our sense of meaning in. He loves you. How much is something worth? How much is something worth? Uh, I lived in Papua New Guinea for a year. I remember going to a marketplace in the highlands of Papua New Guinea and there was a bilum, a kind of colourful bag, which I thought, I'm going to buy that for my mum because she'll love that. Uh, and so I asked the lady sitting on the ground, uh, I said, how much, how much for that bilum? And she said, 30 kina. I thought, that's, that's incredibly expensive. I, do, I can't do that. So I started walking away. And then she said, 20 kina. And then I thought, oh, I think I'm onto something here. 
And so I kept on walking and it went down to 15. And then at 10, I stopped and I walked back. And I said, I'll take it for 10. And she said, no, 20. <laughs> I said, no, you said 10. In the end, I got it, got it for 10. How much is it worth? It's, it's worth however much someone's willing to pay. God has paid with the infinite worth of his son. God has substituted himself for you. He has come and uh, submitted himself to even death upon a cross in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ is of infinite worth. He's of infinite glory and God was willing to pay for you. And so you are of infinite worth. You are of infinite glory. You are of eternal substance. We say, God, I'm not worthy of it. He's made you worthy. He's made you worthy. Not because of anything you are, not because of anything you've done, but because he loves you and died for you. What glory. What wonder that God should do that for us. And you know, it makes sense that God should bring us to himself to be sons and daughters of the Father, to bring us into the family in this way, by our substitution. Because what's sin? Sin is us substituting ourselves for God. I think a lot of the time we think of sin and it's uh, you know, the immoral or bad things that we do. And that's, you know, sin's not less than that, but it's more than that. It's actually a substituting of ourselves for God. It's saying that I am going to be the master of my life. I am going to be the ruler of my life. I'm going to put God to the side because what I want is all the glory and the fullness and the wholeness of what being God is. And so I'm going to try and get that in my life. But the great irony is that it's only when we're putting God as king that the fullness and the glory and the wholeness and the completeness that we long for can be ours. Sin is us substituting ourselves for God and so forgiveness is God substituting himself for us. That God would be in the place that we deserve, that he would die the death that we deserve, and that he would give us the life that is in him, that he would fill us with the love that is from him. That is forgiveness. God there for us. My Lord, what love is this that pays so dearly that I, the guilty one, may go free. Amazing love, oh, what sacrifice. The Son of God given for me. My debt he pays, my death he dies, that I might live. We're going to sing those songs now, those words now. And I invite you, as we sing those words, to... See yourself as Barabbas, to take on for yourself that place, to stand there, the chains taken, the freedom given. Gloriously, wonderfully, sons of the Father, daughters of the Father.